welcome to the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Sean Wilhite, and we're sitting uh, right out here in San Diego uh, at the Society of Biblical Literature in 2014. Our guest today, Dr. Matthew Emerson, is currently Assistant Professor of Christian Ministries and Chair of the Arts and Sciences for California Baptist University Online in Riverside, California. Also, his relationship to the center, he's, he's one of our senior scholars on staff. He's presented papers at the Evangelical Theological Society and, is, and has a number of articles published in journals. He's the author of Christ and the New Creation, a canonical approach to, to the theology of the New Testament by Wittgenstock. Also, he has recently published a commentary on the book of Revelation. Dr. Emerson, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah. Well, well, maybe before we kind of dive a little bit more into the interview, maybe just kind of tell us a little bit about you, uh, where uh, where you kind of stumbled into scholarship, and and specifically, how did you stumble into a little bit of the ancient Christian literature as well? Sure. Yeah, I went to seminary feeling called to ministry, and at the end of it, uh, I was told by a number of people that had giftings and academics and didn't have any church jobs lined up and so I thought well if I can do a PhD I might as well do it and really didn't have any thought even at that time of using a PhD for teaching I figured I'd be a pastor with a PhD it would serve me in in preaching and teaching in the local church which I still think it does and and will in the future but um, I hadn't really considered a career as a, a professor but through the time I spent in my PhD, I began to consider that more seriously, and, and everything came to a head my last semester, really. So I, I mean, this, this is a this is a three-year journey here. My last semester, I was considering going to plant a church yeah. huh. or pursuing an academic career, and as I uh, sat at my desk, I, I had on the, on the one side of my desk a church planning book and on the other side of my desk I had resources for a paper I was working on on Galatians 4 and Paul's use of the Pentateuch in the allegory passage there and I I love the local church I think it's the center of God's mission in the world Uh, but at that moment I felt drawn towards academic ministry towards writing and researching uh, and so I, I asked the Lord that if that was, you know, if he would confirm that by giving me an opportunity that that's what I wanted to do. Right. Uh, and so at that point, uh, I got a job at CBU. So yeah. uh, the Lord, and I, you know, of course, it's not, I'm not Joel Osteening it here or anything like that. But, uh, you know, the Lord provided that opportunity. Yeah. I felt like that was confirmation of, of the direction that I was sensing since then, uh, you know. I, I really wrestle with that. You know, the local church, I really believe that the local church is, is uh, the way that God is accomplishing his mission yeah. in the world through mm-hmm. the power of the Spirit and testifying to his Son. Um, but I feel like my gifts, talents, training, I want to serve the church uh, in an academic ministry. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of the journey there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as my own area... When I entered the PhD, I was 
considering doing something on biblical theology of listening, which actually I'm going to be writing that. I have that manuscript due in 2016, so I'm actually going to be working. Excellent. Yeah, you're going to be done it. So I'm actually going to be doing it. But uh, right when I entered the PhD, I'd never heard of John Salehammer or Forever Child or Stephen Dempster. But uh, my first semester, we had hermeneutics, and we read Hans Frey, and uh, we read... Kevin Van Hooser and we read some other stuff and, and started to really dig in on canonical approaches. Yeah. And so I think that just that collective group there, Child Sites, Dempster, Salehammer, Chapman, uh, these guys really influenced me and I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, nobody's really doing this with the New Testament. I mean, you have you have a few guys, a handful. Uh, I mean, of course, Childs wrote a book, New Testament is Canon, and then... Right. Uh, he, the, the book that came out post-mortem uh, for him was was uh, reading reading Paul reading Paul yeah, yeah. and uh, but but uh, Eugene Limcio and, and Robert Wall at Seattle Pacific and then uh, David Nienhuis and and um, I think it's David Smith have done a few things but that's really it yeah. you know so um, trying to take that that approach to reading scripture that's primarily done in Old Testament scholarship and, and doing it in New Testament scholarship. So that's, yeah. that's really how I was influenced to work on the dissertation that I wrote. Um, and then I was also influenced by my, by my supervisor, David Hogg, who pushed me to read there, but also yeah. pushed me to read um, history of interpretation stuff. So in my... In my Mentorship year, which at Southeastern we have a year of where you have to just read oh, yeah. with your supervisor. Uh, in that year, we basically focused on history of interpretation stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so combining what Childs, et cetera, were doing with canonical approaches, uh, combining that with trying to get at how patristic right. and medieval interpreters read, right. uh, that's, that's sort of the journey that I was on and still am. Mm. Yep. No, no, that that's great. It's it's a, it's exciting to hear about your new project. Twenty so twenty sixteen. Oh, yeah. That's due. Yeah. 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 That's great. And uh, even interesting to hear David uh, David Hogg's influence on you, and just even your hermeneutical journey. Right. Um, and so it, it it extended well beyond maybe just your dissertation idea of biblical theology. Right. But just to be able to talk about hermeneutical influences not only within patristic era. But a medieval and then, right. which I'm sure, which I'm sure serves you today. Right, reading texts uh, and reading modern monographs, modern commentaries. Right, absolutely. Because um, it's you, you, your conversation partners now span across multiple centuries. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think that you know, in, in evangelical life, this is you know, of course, generalizations are always hard. But I'm going to make one. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think evangelical. Interpreters tend to neglect, especially patristic and medieval yeah. period, patristic and medieval periods. And while there is much to critique there, there's also much to be gained. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still on that journey trying to figure out how to learn from them and what to appropriate and that sort of thing. Right. But but I'm definitely glad that you know, my feet have been pushed onto the path. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, maybe maybe just to kind of follow up on that, why do you think there's the oversight there in modern works? I mean, a few different things. Um, 
especially in Baptist life, which you and I are a part of, uh, you know, there's this anti-Roman Catholicism that, that mm. tends to run through anti, you know, anti-Orthodox, although Baptists tend to be more familiar because we're in the West with, with mm-hmm. the Roman Catholic Church. And I think that many, and this is not true necessarily of, of scholars, but lay people may, may associate uh, the patristic period with with just Roman Catholicism in general, which, right. which is unfortunate because I think there's a lot to be learned there. Um, evangelical scholars, being good Protestants, want to emphasize the Reformation, rightly right. so. You know, but if we go and read Calvin and Luther and yeah. sometimes Zwingli, you know, I mean, they're drawing on Christic sources just as much as the Roman Catholic opponents they were arguing against. Right. So, um, my friend Luke and I, are, Luke Stamps, are working on a project on Baptist retrieval of the Christian tradition. Mm. And we like to say that this isn't just the Roman Catholics' tradition or the Greek Orthodox's mm. Greek Orthodox's tradition. This is the Christian tradition. Mm. And so, just as you and I would talk and I would learn from you, I can talk to Irenaeus and learn mm. from him while also saying, oh, you might be wrong here, buddy. You right. know what I mean? And right. that's right. that's sort of the approach that I take. Um, <laughs> as far as other influences on why, I think the other one would be just the pervasive use of historical, what we would call as evangelicals, historical grammatical tools. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we've all been, whether we whether we talk about historical grammatical or historical critical, we've all been very influenced by the Enlightenment. Right. And so there's a sense in which modern interpreters, evangelical or not, want to have something, a, a definitive method right. that they can crank the text through like sausage you know, right. and come out with, with results. Right. Um, right. As we heard a couple of days ago from Craig Bartholomew in the Scripture and Hermeneutics Seminar. I think that's right on. I mean, and mm-hmm. so, you know, the fathers and the medieval interpreters tend to be more free. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to not be as explicit about their method if they mm-hmm. even mention it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and they read the Bible instead of in isolated, siloed pericopes, they read it as one book. Right. Uh, and we're not used to that right. in the Enlightenment. We're not used to right. um, having a spiritual element to interpretation. We're not used to holistic readings. We're just not used to these things. So yeah, even looking at the Bible as a unity. Right. And I think Reno, Reno and O'Keefe's in Sanctified mm-hmm. Vision, they talked about how Jesus is like the, the hypothesis yes. that, that holds the text together. Yes. So now that we, when we approach text, at least within a patristic framework, we see that Jesus is the hypothesis holding all of it together yes. in unity so as to read Old yes. Testament text as Christian text. Yes, and so then, then you know, we have, and I don't, I don't want to speak too strongly here, but I mean, that brings us to another point, which is that people people are sometimes in, um, they're troubled by reading too much of the Bible Christologically. Right, um, yeah. Which, which, which derives from a positive element, which is trying trying to be respectful of authorial intent um, in the Old Testament texts. But I think that a couple of things 
there can be said. Number one is that the, the patristic and medieval theologians, along with the New Testament writers, read the, read the Old Testament Christologically because they saw it as one book and they saw connections between the different parts of the book. So in other words, they weren't disrespecting authorial intent. They were saying, look, these things are connected textually. Right. Now, of course, there's levels of sophistication here between who you read. But, I mean, it, at its best, it was saying there's connections here that demonstrate huh. a Christological reading. Huh. Um, but it also... The fact is that that uh, you know there are, there is both a divine and a human author uh, of every text, and while we certainly don't want to ignore or pass over the human authorial intent, um, we need to be able to appropriate into our hermeneutical model a way to to describe divine authorial intent that respects and maintains the importance of the human author but at the same time recognizes that there is one divine author of the entirety of the book of the Bible right right yeah well and that those comments just even leave me because I know part of your interest part of your projects that you're working on right now and even part of the 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 focus of this center is is to also see an avenue within theological interpretation of scripture and kind of the, the center's entry point into this is seeing the value of patristic hermeneutics, but TIS is much broader than mm-hmm. it's it's much broader than just just patristic hermeneutics as well as others, right? And so maybe 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 if you can just uh, jumping out of some of these hermeneutical discussions, yeah, how has TIS kind of shaped you? Where do you see it moving uh, forward? Maybe right. define it for us, right. and and even just pertinent for us, what is the placement of patristic hermeneutics within mm-hmm. TIS discussions? Yeah, so TIS, uh, you know, of course, there's, you know, the, the definitions of TIS are legion, um, <laughs> but I would say that TIS, theological interpretation of scripture, is reading the Bible in the context of the church with faith and using the best practices of the entirety of the Christian tradition to read. Right. So you have church context, your own personal faith context, and then the communal context of the history of interpretation. And, and, of course, also not denying the, the gains that have been made through modern methods, especially, you know, understanding the language and, yeah. and uh, these sorts of things. So trying to be very holistic about interpretation may be the best way to say it. I mean, there you know, there's an alternate model. I think, I mean, if, you know, the, the models are legion, but I would say the alternate model is just sort of interpreting within the parameters, if there are any, of postmodernism. And that's yeah, not that's sure, not that's sure, not sure. what I mean. Yeah, by TIS, right. um, which it has been. I think there's been some right. conversations that have gone that direction. Right, right. Yeah. So I think the the at its best, TIS is a churchly reading in the context of faith and drawing on the whole history of interpretation yeah. in ways that are biblically and theologically appropriate. Right. And so maybe maybe just to try to push that definition, or maybe flesh this definition by being a Christian reading. Do we mean Trinitarian? Can we can we can we put that into? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think that if you're reading the Bible and, and you're reading it as it describes itself, then it has to be Trinitarian. I mean, the, 
the scriptures are given to us in a covenantal context in which the Father reveals himself through the Word, which is preeminently his Son, uh, and he does so by means of his Holy Spirit. Right. Right. And so if we if we think about the scriptures that way, they are the Spirit-inspired testimony to the Son who in turn reveals to us the Father. Yeah. And so, yes, a Christian reading is always Trinitarian. Hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean, as we talked about in the seminar on Friday, that doesn't mean that uh, every text speaks about the Trinity, but that every text is given to us in the context of the Trinity's economic work of salvation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, those, those, were, those were helpful comments. So, so with TIS kind of being much broader than just Patricia Hermeneutics, mm-hmm. um, what what has been your interest in Patricia Hermeneutics, right, yeah. and how does it relate to the TIS discussions? Yeah, so part of part of what TIS, at least the way I'm looking at it, wants to do is to move beyond modernism. So moving beyond this idea that, again, we can take the text and crank it through an objective method and get an objective result. So that all we're doing in interpretation is just putting the Bible through the meat grinder. There's no, there's no spirit involved. You know, there's, it's not Christological. It's just a number of steps that anybody can use to understand the scriptures. And I think what patristic and medieval hermeneutics do and, and, and the way the reformers interpret the Bible as well is it shows us that careful exegesis should not be divorced from a spiritual mindset in approaching the text. So that's the first thing I would say that, that you know, patristic and then also medieval and Reformation hermeneutics does. Um, so it helps us to see that interpretation is spiritual. It's spirit-led. Uh, it's not something that you can do in isolated fashion on your own, apart from the church, apart from faith, and arrive at right results. And people people often say, well, wait a minute, are you saying that a non-believer, someone who doesn't believe the scriptures are inspired, someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is God, you know, all this sort of thing, I mean, are you saying that they can't give you insights about the text? And no, that's not what TIS is saying. Mm-hmm. But but there's there's more to interpretation than just there's more there's more to finishing the process of interpretation than just getting at what this particular passage quote unquote means. Yeah, the process of interpretation understanding isn't completed hmm. until you're transformed by the text. Hmm. And if you think about the reason that the scriptures are written, it's so that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. And so if, if that's not what's happening in interpretation, it's not biblical interpretation. Right. It's, it's helpful, there's information that can be gained, etc. But but the process actually isn't complete until hmm. you've been transformed by the Spirit through the Spirit-inspired Word. So there's a, so there's a means, or, there, or there's some type of idea of a virtue-like telios. Yes. Virtue-like yeah, there's reading. a goal. There's a yeah. goal to reading. Right. Yeah. So, so Patricia Hermeneutics reminds us of that because yeah. the, the, the fathers were cognizant of this fact that the, the scriptures transform you along with informing you. Right. Um, yeah, it's Augustine 
that even puts caveats on what type of readings are valid. Uh-huh. So if they produce more love of God and more love of the neighbor, exactly. these, these type of virtue-like um, ideas, then those are boundary markers of, of good readings of the right. text. Right, right. Yeah. So, so it does that. And then I think it, it reminds us, and this is not, not necessarily a totally separate point, but it reminds us that there's more to Scripture than just getting at the historicity of, of a text, which, I mean, don't hear, don't, hear, don't mishear me. I don't historicity is very important, and, we, and it, good evangelicals do good work on showing that the Bible is historically accurate. But that apologetic is not the end of reading. You know, and so... And neither is just describing what happened in, in a text. And the fathers remind us that there's there needs to be a, uh, a sense in which you encounter uh, God in your reading and you're transformed and you're reminded of what's coming next. Uh-huh. You know, so, I mean, those are things that, that the fathers and medieval interpreters and the reformers ref- remind us of uh, in, in, in their interpretive methods. Right, right. Um, you know, that's great. Maybe if we can kind of turn a corner on the, the hermeneutical mm-hmm. discussion. and uh, I, I know that you've done some work on the eternal generation of the sun mm-hmm. and some patristic interpretation of the Proverbs. Maybe right. kind of just, okay. what is the conversation that's, that's happening yeah, here? So, maybe, so, you know, in the, in the creeds, uh, especially in the Nicene Constantinople and Creed, um, it says that, that uh, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And if you go and read the Church Fathers and um, early Christian interpreters on this issue, it's Proverbs 8 that's, <laughs> that's typically the text that's used to support this doctrine. Uh, it's, it's not used in isolation. I mean, John 5 uh, and some others are also pulled in. And so we have in two out of the three ecumenical creeds this affirmation of eternal generation of the Son. But today, there are a number of evangelical systematicians who say we should just let go of this doctrine. It's not, it's not, it's not biblical. It's not helpful. It actually, you know, produces separation of the Godhead, this sort of thing. Um, And so. Well, you know, the paper that I have on this is showing that there are just basically two different hermeneutical assumptions in play. Uh, the fathers and early Christian interpreters, <laughs> excuse me, um, wanted to read the scriptures holistically uh, and also in a way that wasn't dependent upon proof text for every doctrine. And so, so. You know, one of the arguments, one of the, one of the main arguments for this doctrine is not just going to Proverbs 8 and John 5. It's saying in the scriptures, the Father and Son are spoken of as equal and yet separate. And so how, how is this the case? And the answer that the fathers and the early Christian interpreters gave was, was that uh, the difference between the three persons of the Trinity is their relations of origin. And, and so they really relied on the divine names here, um, Father, Son, and Spirit. So Father and Son denotes a relationship that you have to explain somehow. And 
the Aryans wanted to explain it via submission. Mm. Uh, of course, it wasn't acceptable to, to these early Christian interpreters, and so they wanted to explain it some other way, and they explained it through generation. And they went to Proverbs 8 and John 5, mm. among others, uh, to, to help them biblically understand what that meant. On the other hand, uh, today, evangelicals who, who reject this doctrine um, want to say that Proverbs 8 isn't about eternal generation, that it's not describing um, the relationship between the Father and the Son, and they read John 5 differently as well. And really what's happening is they, they isolate these texts, and they don't they don't necessarily deal with the patterns of scriptural language that happen throughout the Bible. Because that's what the fathers were doing. They weren't just going to one text or another. They were trying to deal with the pattern of language that you find in the scriptures about the three persons of the Trinity. And what they saw was that the pattern is one of relationship, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one God in three persons, and that what distinguishes them is how they relate to one another, not via submission, but via generation. Um, so it's a very it's a very complex hermeneutical move, and it's funny because um, today, you know, they're sort of accused of misreading Proverbs eight, but they're not just reading Proverbs eight; they're reading the whole the whole canon and trying to figure out how to deal with this. Whereas evangelicals who reject it actually tend to be the ones who are isolating texts and not reading them in canonical context and trying to deal with those patterns of language. So, I mean, just sort of a comparison and contrast uh, of hermeneutical method and approach in the context of this systematic, if you want to call it that, affirmation. Uh, no, that, that's, it's, it's great to hear. And, and it's, it's interesting hearing you kind of flesh out your argument because it doesn't sound like you're purely giving a just purely engaging patristic text. You're, it sounds as if you're engaging patristic text in conversation with current right. writers, current thinkers. So it's you're, you're you're using them as conversation partners. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, you know, interestingly enough, in the paper. Well, I guess I should leave it to you to judge whether it's interesting or not. But um, <laughs> I think it's I think it's interesting that. Yeah. And, and I'm going to have to say this carefully, and I'm going to have to clarify too. Um, it, interestingly enough, the hermeneutical approach that's used by evangelical scholars today that, who reject eternal generation is very similar to the hermeneutical approach used by the Arians. Mm. Now, can you flesh that out? Let me yeah. clarify that I do not believe those men and women who reject eternal generation, they are Arians. Mm-hmm. They're not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not calling them Arians, but the Arians read texts very is- in a very isolated fashion, huh. and they didn't deal with the patterns of language in the scriptures, and neither do evangelicals who reject the doctrine today. It's it's a isolate this text, read it in, in its historical context, whatever that might be, because it depends on your own reconstruction, you know, this sort of thing. And um, they don't deal with really a canonical approach to reading these texts. And again, I'm not. They're not Aryans. Yeah. Let me just, let me just yeah. say that one more time. <laughs> they're not Aryans. I'm not saying they're Aryans, but their hermeneutical approach is more similar to yeah, the Aryans. There's similarity. Similarity does not yeah. equal equality. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 
you're just you're just noting similar similar yep. ideas there. Yeah, well, that's yeah that that sounds like a great project, and uh, that that's, that's hopefully more forthcoming there. Right. But maybe maybe cast a vision for us. What what are types of projects you envision for the future? Maybe that can mm. help bridge these gaps that we've already been talking about hermeneutics. What are what are projects you want to see others maybe doing, or, yeah. or that you want you yourself want to be involved in? Yeah, I'm so I'm so. Uh, hope this doesn't offend anybody because we're in the age of political correctness, but I'm so ADD uh, that I just can't seem to stay on one thing. <laughs> so I've got four, I think around four main things going. Um, I'm trying to work on a project that I mentioned earlier about Baptist retri- retrieval hmm. of the Christian tradition. And so I'm trying to get a book together on that, an edited volume, perhaps also some other monographs on or articles on various aspects of how Baptists can relate to the Christian tradition. So worship, uh, baptism, Lord's Supper, these sorts of things. Just trying to trying to draw Baptists into conversation and including Baptists in, in historical interpretive practices. Um, let's let these guys pass. So also, um, Along with that, I'm really interested in the Book of Revelation. Hmm. So you, you know, you mentioned in the intro that I have a commentary. I wouldn't call it a commentary on Revelation, maybe, but <laughs> a little booklet, um, a study guide, yeah. you know, on Revelation. Yeah. So I'm really interested in the Book of Revelation. I, I think that it's an it's a hard book, mm-hmm. um, but it's also supposed to be a revealing book. Mm-hmm. Right, it's the revelation. Right? Yeah, of Jesus it, yeah Christ. exactly. Yeah. You know, so you know, discussions of Revelation mm-hmm. tend to devolve into you know where you are on a whole host of eschatological issues, but uh, I, I want I like digging into that book. It's fun. Mm. It's fun to me. So mm. uh, I have the the booklet, the little study guide coming out on that, and I would like to. I'm not sure exactly what the, I don't have anything concrete going on right now, but mm. would like to continue to pursue studying that book. There's a lot of stuff on the church's worship use and the, mm. the use of revelation in the church's worship, and, and there's a lot of things actually on how Revelation might be related to the early church's worship practices uh, in terms of its structure. Uh, so you you know you begin with this call to worship and then you end with the Lord's Supper. So I mean I mean there's just some really interesting yeah. things about that book that I would like to explore. I'm not really sure what that looks like at the moment. I don't have anything going, but that's one of that's a continued area of interest for me. Um, this thing with eternal generation, um, it's I hope it's still being considered for a, a place and a volume coming out on general generation. Mm-hmm. Um, if if it's not, uh, I also have an essay on that I'm, I'm going to be presenting at the LA Theology Conference coming up in January on the, uh, the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. How does the burial of Christ relate to the atonement, eschatology, this sort of thing? So... I'm really interested in that kind of project where you're taking creedal affirmations that tend to be questioned now mm. and showing the biblical and theological warrant for them. Uh, so that would be another. So, you know, biblical theology oftentimes uh, is approached from the the biblical side, and rightly so, you know. Um, where we're trying to show the relationship between text, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, how the Old Testament uses the Old Testament theology of particular books, you know, this sort of, and that's those I love those too. Uh, and in fact, that's the fourth thing I'm about to mention. Mm. Um, but 
a lot of times biblical theology doesn't really focus on the theological side of things. So um, how does our biblical theology inform our systematic theology? Mm. And likewise, is our systematic theology biblical theology? Uh, so I'm really interested in the interplay between between those two. And then finally, like I just mentioned, just straight up biblical theology as we usually think about it, showing the relationship between texts, showing how the New Testament uses right. the Old Testament, intertextuality, interbiblical illusion. Love that stuff. Yeah. So um, right now, uh, I'm working on this Descent to the Dead paper, so that's under number three. Uh, I'm, I'm working on the biblical theology of listening, which is more number four, you know, trying to take a theme and trace it canonically. Um, not doing anything on, anything on Revelation at the moment. I'm also, I've also got an article uh, that should be coming out in the spring on Paul's eschatology of the pastoral epistles. Um, and then what, I don't even remember what the first thing I said was. Anyway, I, I'm working on a lot of different stuff. <laughs> right. I, you know, I mean, broadly, really, yeah. here, here's what I want to do. I want to I help Christians hmm. in the church and in the academy read their Bibles. And that's really it. You know, I, I'm not saying I have all the answers or that, um, you know, I'm not helped by others or anything like that. But but if I was going to, if you're going to ask me, what do you want to do? Hmm. That would be it. That's it. Help, yeah. help Christians, right. academy or right. like, read the Bible. Right. Help them to see the Christ in all the scriptures through the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Um, and whatever way that might work itself out, that's what I want to do. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's rich. And, and one of the aspects of the center, this even leads us to our, kind of our last question, which is one of the aspects of the center that, that Dr. Emerson is a part of, as well as a slew of others, is that there's just great concern for the next generation, the next pair of students behind us. Um, to do either go on to scholarship or go on to the pastoral office. And, and I'm sure, you know, even in some of your testimony that you shared, there's dilemma. There's the, 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 the dilemma, which, which direction do I go? Do I go towards the scholarship route? Do I go towards the church route? And maybe there might be a, a medium in there. You know, there's not a, um, you know, there's not, you know, you don't necessarily need to choose between right. the two, but somehow do both. But maybe if you if you were to have two minutes with your old self, or even two minutes with an upcoming yeah. um, student, uh, well, how, how would you encourage them to you know make some of the future right. decisions that are that are coming up ahead? Can I can I have two minutes with my present self or maybe my future self? Yeah. Um, you know, I guess I would say you, you have to really consider what the Lord has placed in your heart as far as desires. I mean, I don't, I don't see academic ministry and pastoral ministry as these two sides of a huge chasm, you know, and, but they're not completely the same either. Um, so I would say consider how the Lord has built you and, and what he's given you in terms of desires, you know, for me, um, I want to serve the church through researching and writing and teaching. Uh, you know, so I want to be involved in training the next generation of, of church leaders to to think theologically and biblically. Uh, now, can I do that in a church context? Sure. I mean, this, but it's, it's going to be a different context academically. You know? uh-huh. 
um, it's a different environment, it's, it's different material, and, and it's different people that you're training, and so you train them in differently. So, you know, the work of the local church is vitally important. Academic ministry is in service to the church. Uh, but I think you have to decide, and you have to really have help people help you decide which side of that coin your best, you know, where you best fit. Um, for me, uh, along with my own desires, uh, my personality, I think, is a big hmm. maybe stumbling block for me to go into pastoral <laughs> ministry. Um, you know, I mean, that's not saying that that's a disqualification yeah, right, thing, but, right. but you know, I mean, I, I don't know. The, the the way that the Lord has built me and shaped me has been in such a way that um, I think I'm probably serving people better being more in the classroom than I am trying to do hospital visits. Mm. Um, and again, that's not to say that the latter is unimportant. It's it's more important. Um, but you have to you have to think about those things. You have to think about not just hey, do I love theology or not? Or, hey, do I love biblical studies or not? You have to think about, you know, how, how God has built you. Uh, and you need, you need other people around you to, to confirm and strengthen you in that. So really, you know, it's a reliance on the Spirit, both in, in your own communal and ecclesial life and also in your own, your own individual spiritual life to, to try to discern that. And it is a work of discernment. Part of that work is is the communal aspect I just mentioned, but it's also um, individual as well. So, yeah. well, it's great. Well, again, this is Dr. Emerson, uh, part of Cal Baptist University, and Dr. Emerson, it's been great to have you with us. Thanks, Sean.